Well, it is good to gather again. It's reminiscent of the days when we were unable to meet and the auditorium is relatively empty. But uh, I'm glad that you've been able to tune in with us and to follow along in live stream. One of the blessings, I guess, that we've become accustomed to that we don't have to completely miss um, gathering together. Uh, I want to take some time today, as Barry has already mentioned, to finish off a, a series that we've been looking at about really what Jesus is doing right now. What is Jesus doing in this inter-advental period that is between his first coming and his second coming? Or as we read in Hebrews, between the first and the third coming of Christ, there is a second appearing. Uh, he first appeared to deal with our sins. He will, in the end of this age, appear to uh, save us all. But in the present time, he is now at this time appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. If you've been following along with us these last number of weeks, I hope you have been somewhat um, thankful and had your eyes opened a little bit, as I have, to the breadth of Christ's ongoing work on our behalf right now. I sometimes wonder if we've communicated exactly what it is that Scripture speaks about these kinds of things, what has been made possible to us and what Christ is doing for us now as a result of his incarnation and then his resurrection by the power of God and finally his ascension into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. I have uh, been thinking this week about John's phrase that we looked at last week from uh, 1 John chapter 2, where John says, I write these things for you that you may not sin. That is God's will for us right now. That is God's will for me right now, that I may not sin and that I may be assured of an eternal future. And it's been working through some of these things to help us not sin. We turn to Christ and what he's doing for us right now as he sits at the right hand of the Father. We've thought about how Christ is helping me right now not to sin because when I face temptation, he is able to sympathize with me and he knows what I need to make it through that particular situation. Christ also knows what I need to persevere what I need to do to keep going and not give up. And as the scripture says, he ever lives to make intercession for me, to pray that I will not fall and stumble uh, eternally. He also has worked on our behalf to make it less and less possible for us to sin as he mediates to us a new covenant. And part of that mediation is to increasingly implant the word of God into our hearts and into our minds. And lastly, we will consider this morning a little bit about our rebelliousness. And as Christ continues to subdue us and to su subdue our rebellious nature, then we will sin less and less and less. And so all of this then has been attended uh, and been in intended some way to help us realize that John is serious when he says, I'd write these things to you so that you may not sin. And all of this is the result of the incarnation. All of these ways in which Christ helps us had been made possible because of his birth in Bethlehem uh, way back 2,000 or so years ago. And so my prayer has been, as we've worked our way through these, that as the family of God together here at Parksville, we will grasp in a fresh way or an increasing way the wonder and the grace and the mercy of our Father Never take it for granted, never presuming upon it, but rather rejoicing in all that God has done for us and all that God continues to do for us through the fullness of Christ. 
There's one more topic that I've already alluded to and has been the theme of our service so far, and that's the present reign of Christ now. In some denominations, and particularly the Presbyterian denomination, they refer to this as the session of Christ. Session meaning sitting. And, and so it's a derived from the many references that you find in Christ after his ascension. It says that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And as we think about this and we think about the reign of Christ, I just want to kind of address a couple of things before we look at three texts in particular. And I was working this through in my head, and I think sometimes that we are often prone to think about the future reign of Christ, that we look ahead to the time at the end of this world in which Christ is going to reign one day at the end of this age, rather than to think in our heads that right now Christ is reigning, that right now Christ is ruling over this world, over this universe, and over my life. And so what I want us to wrestle with a little bit is this notion, if Christ is presently reigning, what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for the world? And what does that mean for the church? Let me make just a couple of observations first and then look at some of the specific things that God's word tells us. I was wrestling in my own mind thinking, well, why do we not think of the reign of Christ as something that's already begun? Why is it that we don't often think about the present reign of Christ? And, and I think partly it's because it doesn't feel like it. And things don't seem to be under the rule of Christ right now. We look at the world in which we live, and there's significant rebellion taking place all over the place, in our own communities, in our own province, in our own country, uh, in the world in which we live. It just doesn't feel like anybody's in control. But can we really rely on what we see, or worse yet, what we feel? Is it wise to make judgments about the nature of the world and the state of the world by simply what we feel or what we see? Some of you maybe have been associated with our church long enough to remember back in 2018, we spent some time in the book of Revelation. And one of the things that we wrestled with was a phrase, not my own phrase, but a phrase taken from uh, one Daryl Johnson, where he writes in his book uh, on Revelation somewhere, he says, things are not as they seem. Or then he further clarifies that, and he says, things are not only as they seem. I have on my wall of my study at home some words by Daryl Johnson that are a little bit fuller than this, which help me remind myself about the present reign of Christ and the reality that just because I don't see something going on doesn't mean that it's not going on. And these are what I have on my wall. Things are not as they seem. There's more going on than meets the unaided senses. There is a God, a living God, a good God, a faithful God, a powerful God, a reigning God, an ever-present God. There's never a time when God is not good. There's never a time when God is not faithful. There's never a time when this God is not powerful. There's never a time when the God of the Bible is not on the throne of the universe. There's never a time when the God we meet in Jesus is not present. It's a promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. Things are not as they seem. And so I think that's one thing that we have to wrestle with. Just because it doesn't seem like it or just because it doesn't feel like there is somebody on the throne of the universe, that there isn't. The Bible is very clear. Christ is reigning right now. 
I suspect another reason that some have trouble thinking about the present reign of Christ is due to a particular understanding of Scripture and the nature of the world in which we live. Because some of us have, have, have think more precisely in terms of the fact that there's a future reign of Christ that will happen when the millennium starts at the end of this age. In fact, many understand, or some understand, the book of Revelation as referring to the very end of this age, which will usher in a millennium in which Christ will reign. I know many people um, uh, think that way and view it that way. That's not how I necessarily understand it. I understand the book of Revelation, actually, of one of the most extraordinary descriptions and reminders of the present reign of Christ. That right now, if you read through the book of Revelation, it is a book that I believe describes the age in which we live now, these last days, which are characterized by the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so the book of Revelation describes for us the reign of Christ presently in this world and how he will bring everything in this world finally under his full authority and hand it over to the Father. We think too about the book of Acts. Sometimes we look at the book of Acts and think of it only as a book of history. It's a book that we think tells us about the history when, of the church when it first began. That is true, but it's also, though, a description of how Christ now is presently reigning over the church, guiding it, guarding it, protecting it, leading it. We get an example of uh, this when we think about the life of, uh, of, of Saul and how Christ spoke to Saul and, and converted him and, and then sent him on his way to help the church. And so it's a reign that we find described in the book of Revelation and in the book of Acts that Christ is presently now reigning. So we've got three texts that I want us to look through, significant texts. And the first one, if you have your Bibles with you, beside you, you can take them and turn in them. The first one is found in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 to 28. And these verses describe for us the present reign of Christ. This is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all things under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in, sub, unto, un, in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son of uh, himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be in all. If you read the context of uh, chapter 15 in particular, you'll be reminded that Paul is talking about the resurrection. He first begins by referring to the resurrection of Christ. Then he mentions the fact that all who are in Christ will be made alive when Christ returns. And we say, well, when does that take place? When, does, when are we all made alive, those of us who are in Christ? Well, he says at the coming of Christ, which is the parousia of Christ. And then notice what Paul says next. Then comes the end. The end of what? Well, the end of the age in which we live right now. 
And at that time, this remarkable transaction takes place. At the end of this age, when we are made alive in Christ, then he, Jesus Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, all powers. And this takes place after he has dethroned or overthrown every rule, every authority, and every power. So when does this dethroning take place? Well, it takes place in this present age. Right now, it is taking place. Notice what Paul says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Do you see what Paul is saying there? He's telling us that right now in this inter-advental period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, that Christ is reigning. And what does that reign look like? Well, he says what is happening right now is Jesus Christ, as he is reigning over this world, is subduing, is bringing this whole world under his control, under his power. Increasingly, more and more, till at the point where at one day, and hopefully it's one day soon, everything will be completely subject to him, even death, and he will present it then to his Father. This phrase being, everything put under his feet, is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. And Psalm 110, verse 1 is the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. It's referred to specifically or by reference about 30 times in the New Testament. It's a reign that's described, as I've already mentioned, by John in the book of Revelation. There we see Christ reigning over this world, this universe, in this last day. And then notice what Paul says, the last enemy to be defeated is what? Well, the last enemy to be defeated is death. And when is death defeated? Well, it's defeated at the resurrection of the righteous when Christ returns. When the bodies of those in Christ are raised from the dead, their mortal bodies or the mortal bodies of those who are still alive when Christ comes are transformed. And then death is no more. And so the reign of Christ will be completed. The reign of Christ over this present earth will be completed when Christ returns, raises those in Christ who are dead, raises or transforms the bodies of those of us who are alive and makes us immortal. It's what Revelation 24 says, that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more death. Why? Because the victory of Christ, the reign of Christ is complete and perfect. So, loved ones, as you work this through in your heads, what Paul is telling us is that Christ is right now reigning and that Christ is winning. And at the end of this earthly reign, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. And so things are not as they seem or things are not only as they seem. The second text is Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 19 to 22. There, Paul writes these words. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us, of God's power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, right now, and in the age to come. 
and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. That's an extraordinary um, few uh, uh, sentences that Paul writes. It's part of his prayer to the church, to us who are part of the body of Christ. And it covers a considerable period of time, his prayer. He began in verse 18 talking about the call of God in our lives, which looks back to the day in which we heard him speaking to us and we responded in faith and were transformed into his likeness. And he talks about the inheritance which, will we, which we will receive when Christ returns. But what's going on in the middle of that? What's going on between our call and the day that we get our inheritance? He says God's power is at work. And how great is that power and what is evidence of that power? Well, it's the same power of God that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. It's resurrection power. And it's not simply, or it wasn't simply a resuscitation of Christ, but it was a transformation of Christ. It was a whole new dimension of human experience. His body was changed. His body was made immortal. It was the power of God at work in the ascension of Jesus Christ when he seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. This is one of the many references again to, uh, to remind us where Christ is right now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, appearing in the presence of God right now on our behalf. And it's the power of God at work in the victory of Christ who is now seated. Notice what he says, far above. Far above what? All rule and authority and power and dominion. See, now that God or Christ has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand, Peter tells us, with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Take careful note of that. Just remind yourself of that. Stick that in your head and, and, and put it there for quick reference. What it's telling us is right now, Christ is enthroned above every power, even the invisible powers over all evil. These are the spiritual powers in heavenly places that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6.12. Here's a, another reference in this text to Psalm 110 verse 1, where he makes his enemies his footstool. It's evidence of his reign over, the, over evil. And it's we who have been rescued from the domain of evil and transformed in, or transferred into the wonderful kingdom of light. Colossians says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So right now, Christ is conquering evil. He is reigning over evil. And the evidence of that is that many of us have been transferred from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, which is evidence of his reign. And Paul says, he is far above every name that is named, not only in this name, in the age to come. So pick a name. Pick any name from history, any name you want. Paul says Christ is enthroned above that person. Pick another name. Pick another name, any name that you want from all of history. And again, Paul tells us that Christ is enthroned above that person. Christ rules every person. Christ directs every, every person. Christ can change the mind of anyone he wants. Christ can direct the steps, and he does direct the steps of everyone. Christ 
thwarts the plans of men and women that are against him. We make plans or kings make plans in their heart, uh, but, but God, um, the Christ, manipulates the plans in their hearts like we can manipulate channels of water. And he says he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Or we might say for the church or for the benefit of the church. I, I don't know if you, if you caught that. But the reign of Christ, the present reign of Christ over this world right now is a specific purpose. And that purpose is for the church, for the benefit of the church. The center of the reign of Christ is for the church. His reign has in mind the perfection of the church, its security, its safety, its expansion. He reigns over all things. He subdues all his enemies. He withstands all sinister evil forces in the universe in order to safeguard and bless his chosen people. As one put it, the headquarters of his kingdom is the church. And the spread of that kingdom is through the church. Some of you may be familiar with the Westminster Catechism. Question 26 asks this, how does Christ execute the office of king? It's a great question. How does Christ execute the office of the king? The answer is given this way. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. The center of Christ's reign is for his church. You, some of you are really familiar with Matthew chapter 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission. And there, once again, we, we have described the reign of Christ and the power of Christ. Where Jesus talks to his disciples and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's pretty astounding. There's, there's not one single person, not one single power, not one single authority that is outside or above Christ. He is above all of those things. And then notice what he says. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Christ. And, and you see the context of this, right? It's that Christ is for the gospel. Christ is for the church. Nothing can stop it. No man can thwart its advance. No visible or invisible menace can stay his power to save, the power of the gospel to transform. The gates of hell, it says, will not prevail against the church. Our God reigns, as Isaiah says. In the most practical of terms, Christ can and does move heaven and earth for the sake of the gospel. I think this is one of the greatest encouragements of Christian witness, the power of the gospel and of the reign of Christ. Our responsibility is simply to bring the gospel wherever Jesus reigns. 
And where does Jesus reign? He reigns over every nation, every country, every man, woman, every girl, every boy in this world. There is not a place in this universe that Christ does not reign. One Dutch writer, some of you are familiar with, Abraham Cooper, is often quoted with these words. He says, There is not a square inch of the world that Christ does not claim with the words, that is mine. We get a glimpse of the reign of Christ on behalf of the church. I mentioned this earlier in the conversion of Saul. Saul was bent on rounding up those who followed the way or were following Christ. But if you read the account, we read how Jesus stopped him. When where did Jesus stop him from? Jesus stopped him from heaven. The reigning Jesus spoke to him from heaven and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And from that moment on, there was this incredible transformation that took place in Paul where Christ, the reigning king, stopped him from persecuting the church and transformed him into one who would be building the church. So loved ones, never give up on your son or your daughter. Never give up on your husband or wife. Never think uh, somebody that you work with or a schoolmate that you go to school with is a lost cause. Why? Because Jesus reigns over every square inch of this world. Because all authority in heaven and earth has been giving, given him, and he sends you and I out to make disciples. He is the reigning Christ, and he's for the church, and he reigns over hearts. Ask Jesus to bring the enemies of the church to their knees. Ask Jesus to bring the one whom you are praying with, the one who you are witnessing to, the one who are longing that they would receive the gospel. Ask him to work in their lives in such a way as to release them from the grip of Satan and to transfer them from the domain of darkness into the marvelous light of his kingdom. Christ reigns, and he is able to do that in any single life. Now Christ has entered into an era in which his victory over death, sin, and Satan is being worked out. And that era is right now, in these last days, the days between his first coming and his second coming. He reigns. He towers over all and over everything. There is no rule greater than Christ. There is no authority that can thwart his purposes. There is no power that can withstand his. There is no dominion that can prevent his advance. And Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be open to see that. Loved ones, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to fear any authority that is in your life or over your life or in your world. Don't be afraid of anything because Christ is reigning over all. Christ has power over everyone. Christ has authority over everything. He is winning. And he will finally subdue all of those who reject and rebel against him and bring them under his authority. That's wonderful comfort in the day and age in which we live. And finally, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. Again, words that many of us are familiar with. Speaking of Christ, the glorified Christ, 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, notice this, for by him, for by Christ, all things were created. All things. He made them in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Do you hear that, loved ones? Do you see what we are, do you, do you see what God is wanting us to understand? There is nothing that is outside of, nothing that is beyond, nothing that is self-existent that is outside of the reign and rule of Christ. He made it all, he guides it all, he controls it all, and it's all for him and for his glory. Christ has this incredible relationship with God. And we've been hinting at this and sometimes explaining it. That Christ, yes, was the perfect man, but Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus Christ is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. He is such because he is God in himself. And when it says that Christ is firstborn, that doesn't mean that a reference to his physical birth or to chronology. Rather, it's a reference to his position or his rank. He is preeminent. He is before all. He is above all. And second, again, think of this universe. Not only the things that you can see, but the things that you can't see. Not only the big things, but the little things. Not only the visible things, but the invisible things. Notice what it says. Christ made it all. By him all things were created. So does that include everything? Well, yes, that's how I understand all things. Things in heaven and things in earth. Things visible and things invisible. In all these spheres, everything, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, Christ created it all. All these things were created through him and for him. He made them. He rules over them. He existed before any of these things ever existed. And he holds them all together. There is not one loose cannon, one loose leader, one loose power, one loose authority that is outside of his control, that is beyond his ability to rein in, to corral, to bring under his authority as he is doing right now. So involved is he in this world that he has made, so intimate is his rule over everything that without him everything would fall apart. Not only did Christ make this world, but he sustains it and he holds it together. And again, not just the visible things, but the invisible things as well. As Peter tells us, he entered heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, ruling forces and powers subject to him. I hope you're beginning to hear it and maybe wrap your heads around it and, and, and say, okay, I, I will start to wrestle with this and I will start to work this through. There is nothing, loved ones, nothing and no one that is outside of the present reign of our glorious Christ. Every year I read Revelation chapter 12. Actually, at the end of every year, I read the book of Revelation. And Jesus gives us these per incredible perspectives of his present reign in this world in which we live. 
And there's a way in which he kind of goes back over things. If you read Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, verse 19, you get one um, perspective of the reign of Christ from his ascension to his return. And then if you read Revelation 12, verse 1 to 20, verse 15, you get another perspective of the reign of Christ from his ascension to his return. And it's kind of like those... those um, uh, pictures that they used to have where you would have uh, a picture and then you'd uh, peel over another plastic one, it would give you another layer, and you peel over another one, it would give you another layer, but all of the same picture. And that's what Revelation gives us, two perspectives of a single period of time, which gives us insight into the rule of Christ, the reign of Christ over this whole world. God is in control. It's remarkable to read Revelation chapter 5 and, and, and hear the cry of, of the ones in heaven saying, who is worthy to open the scroll? In other words, who is worthy to unfold the plan of God? Who is worthy to make that known? Who is worthy to carry that out? And all of a sudden, Christ steps up. And he takes the scroll and one by one, he breaks the seals on it. And one by one, he unfolds the purposes of God for this world. The wonderful thing when you read Revelation chapter 12 is that you read in there when Christ went up to heaven, he booted Satan out. In fact, six times you will read the word thrown down regarding Satan. Six times John reminds us as to drill it into our heads that Satan has been cast out. Satan has been thrown down, thrown down, thrown down to this earth. He no longer has access to heaven. Christ is now in heaven and he's reigning there. And this is why Satan rages, why he makes war against the people of God. Satan is ticked off and he's angry and he's angry in particular at the church because he knows that Christ is reigning. He knows his time is short. That's what John tells us. But he says the people of God need not be afraid. The people of God never don't need to throw their hands up in the air and wonder what's going to happen. John tells us, he says, and they have conquered him. Have conquered who? Have conquered Satan. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. This is how we live in this present world, confident that Christ is reigning. We recognize that the blood of Christ has washed us from our sins. The blood of Christ has brought us into a new eternal covenant. We recognize that we speak for Christ. We speak for God. We, we defend him. We, we go out and we proclaim his kingdom around us. We don't worry about our lives, whether our physical lives will exist for a long time or will be taken from us, because we know that Christ has conquered death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens. Or Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on the earth. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Satan is constrained, but he's raging. When the woman escapes his wrath, it says that Satan went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, which is the church. And on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus, that's the people of God who are faithful subjects. And then for the next seven or eight chapters of Revelation, we see what this war looks like, but we also see the reign of Christ reigning in power until the final day 
at the end of this age when Satan and the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire and the dominion of Christ is evident to all. What does this mean in simple terms for us, loved ones? Well, it means everything, I think. We pride ourselves sometimes in living in a democracy. But as Christians, we should pride ourselves that we are actually part of the kingdom of God. That that is where we are at home. That that is where we take our marching orders from. That that is who we are serving. And that it's the reign of Christ that matters to us. It's the reign of Christ, not only in the world, but also in our hearts that matter to us. And we are about being faithful servants that spread that reign and that kingdom around the world and in the lives of those in which we contact with. I was reading in, uh, this uh, R.C. Sproul and how he writes about this. And I end with this illustration from him. It helped me. He says, Sproul writes, I love the legend of Robin Hood. In one version of the story, King Richard the Lionhearted leaves England to fight in the Crusades, leaving his brother, Prince John, in charge of the realm. John mismanages the kingdom for his own benefit, forcing Robin and others to become outlaws. Robin and his compatriots, known as his merry men, live in Sherwood Forest, evading John and his henchmen, the Sheriff of Nottingham. The merry men are known for their joy, but they are known especially for their loyalty. They want to protect the realm until the king comes home. Sproul writes, his favorite part of the story happens near the end when Richard returns to England in the guise of a monk. And at an inn, he hears talk of Robin Hood and his opposition to Prince John. So he purposely travels through Sherwood Forest. Suddenly, Robin and his men waylay Richard and his fellow travelers and try to relieve the king of his purse. The king asks Robin, why are you doing this? Robin replies, because of my allegiance to the king. Then Richard pulls off the monk's garments and displays the lion and the cross on his chest. Robin recognizes him and falls on his knees saying, my liege. In the end, Richard knights Robin because of his faithfulness during the absence of the king. And Sproul concludes with this. I love that story as a metaphor for the church. Our king is seated at the right hand of God. He expects us, his people, to remain loyal to him while the world goes for Prince John. And in time, he will return and put all things right. What a great way to end this year, reflecting on the fact that this world is not unruled. It might be unruly, but it's not unruled. Christ is on the throne and he is bringing all things under subjection. And in a short time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, we thank you for your word and the way that it helps us understand what Christ is doing for us right now. There's so many ways in which Christ is involved in our world, Father. There's so many ways in which Christ is working on behalf of his brothers and sisters, the church. And I pray, Father, that as we wrap up this year, may we have time to think about how he sympathizes with us, how he intercedes for us, how he mediates on our behalf, how he advocates for us. And Father, how he is right now reigning for us, not only subduing the world around us, but also subduing our own rebellious hearts. 
And Father, might we be those who are in the absence of our King physically as he is in heaven, continue to be loyal to him until that day when he returns and there is a mighty shout and triumph from all of his subjects. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.